0: This is History West Midlands.
1: For most families in Britain, the First World War was a war of written words, not pictures or sounds. Billions of letters to and from the front were the only platform for expressing their hopes and fears and for dreaming of a future beyond the conflict. In her third programme, University of Worcester historian Haley Carter explores the correspondence between these ordinary men and women living in extraordinary circumstances.
2: Letters from loved ones at the front became a critical aspect of life for millions of mothers, wives and sweethearts left behind in the towns and villages of Worcestershire and the surrounding counties. Writing letters to those at home provided men with brief opportunities to forget their surroundings. It momentarily allowed them to remove themselves from the horror of life in the front line or the drudgery or boredom of military life. They could disappear into an imagined and familiar world of normality and security in which home was viewed through the lens of nostalgia, a place to which they longed to return. The absence of a letter in return made these hopes and dreams more tenuous. It suggested that for some reason, the world they believed they were fighting for might not be as attainable as they hoped. Failure to receive a letter could be devastating. A Stoddart Kennedy, a Church of England vicar from Worcester, who ministered to the men on the front, explained.
3: When your boy is up the line, that letter is needed. He comes back to rest, drenched to the skin and shivering with cold, and his first thought is always, so they tell me, letters from home. Picture to yourself his face, as the pile in the sergeant's hand grows less and less, and still his name has not been called. See him turn away and go to his corner, without his hope and with the blankness of his heart. And remember that next time the letter may be there, the name may be called, and no answer made, because they are carrying someone on a stretcher out of the clearing station. The voice that should have answered gladly will never answer any more.
2: Yet when these men wrote home, they very rarely talked about their personal hardships or the death and destruction that surrounded them. As a result, in this pre-television age, loved ones did not have a picture of the horror of life at the front. Only the release in 1916 of the official war film, The Battle of the Somme, gave people at home a glimpse into the realities of war. About 20 million people saw the film in the first six weeks after it was released, many of them sitting through repeated performances and around 46 million went to see the film in total. Local newspapers reported that it was played to packed cinemas throughout the West Midlands with special showings for munitions workers in Birmingham, inmates from a workhouse in Coventry, and school children in Birmingham, as the Birmingham Daily Post explained on the 5th of September 1916. One
4: often hears the statement that even at this stage the British people as a whole have but an inadequate conception of the great struggle which is going on in France and the other theatres of war. The exhibition of the film depicting the Battle of the Somme, which is the chief feature at the Empire this week, will do more than anything has yet done to enable people at home to realise what is taking place. The pictures will make a great impression, for here is drama indeed. Not the sophisticated work of professional players, but war, with all its grimness, horror, and tragedy, in which the actors are our own husbands, sons, and brothers. But there is an even closer local interest. The great part which the Warwickshire and Worcestershire regiments took in the big push is now well known. The men of the battalions which covered themselves with so much glory feature prominently on the screen. There are the Warwick's having a meal in camp on the evening preceding the advance. A number of Worcester's, fixing wire cutters to their rifles for breaking through German entanglements. The Warwick's again, proceeding along a captured trench to relieve another regiment.
2: But even as the war dragged on, and the often long lists of the dead became a daily feature of many newspapers, the men's letters home still rarely mentioned the true nature of life at the front. What couples did write off was their shared memories of the past, their hopes for a united future together, a hasty end to the war, and their continuous longing to be together again. Consequently, many letter collections follow similar themes, the reliving of a shared past and dreaming of a desired future together. For some, these longings focused on a few snatched moments together on forthcoming leave. Plans and speculation surrounding possible leave is a constant feature of many letters. John Frederick Wheeler from Upton, repeatedly requested leave to return home from his training camp in order to help with the harvest and also in the hope of seeing his wife and two children. However, his leave was often delayed or denied. He writes in December 1915.
5: There is a chance I may come this weekend. It's only for a few hours, but I should like to see you and the kiddies.
2: John and his wife Bessie had married before the war's outbreak and so had the benefit of memories of their time together to share. These often included references to other family members, their children and also their shared experiences of the community they lived in.
5: I feel I want to write you a love letter so badly if I only could. I think of the date. I'm so longing to see you again. And if the war is not over, I might get leave about November. Not that that would be like the end of the war. Just think, six years tomorrow since our wedding day and I have spent three and a half in the army. Isn't it too bad? Someday, perhaps I shall be able to show you what you are to me.
2: Established couples like this were often blessed with a stable and robust emotional connection, which provided both of them with a sense of security and mutual trust. Their communication becomes reminiscent of a chat around the kitchen table or by the fireside. For example, John wrote to Bessie in July 1917.
5: I have so often been thinking of you and have been wondering if you have been stinting yourself of necessaries or little extras in the way of food or clothes. Do you need a tonic? I don't want you to get to look old or careworn or miserable, but I think the children will keep you from the latter at least. Have you enough money? I absolutely believe the war will be over by Christmas and have very good reasons for thinking so, so cheer up. Just think that I may be home for Christmas and keep looking nice. Do go and see Dr Dickinson if you don't feel up to the mark.
2: However, for those still courting or couples who had rushed into marriage at the outbreak of hostilities, the reliving of time spent together and the emotional connections were more problematic. The foundations of rushed marriages were established under the shadow of enduring separation. There were elements of anxiety and insecurity surrounding these couples. Their relationships depended upon letters which held the key to establishing their knowledge of each other and developing their love. An anxious lieutenant W. Whiteman wrote from France to his new wife on July the 5th, 1918.
6: So disappointing. No letter from you either yesterday or today, and you can barely realize how much I look forward to your dear sweet letters. I hope it is but a delay in the post and that I shall receive a letter from you both tomorrow and the next day to make up for today's disappointment.
2: Hasty marriages were often founded upon impulsive decisions based on little knowledge of each other. The couple often got to know one another through their correspondence. Whilst enduring the separation, couples created a future life together within their imaginations. For couples who were newlywed, there was always the possibility that after the war ended and once the longed-for reunion had passed, the realisation would slowly dawn that they were not compatible and no longer in love. For some, that realisation occurred when a period of short leave was granted and they found it impossible to overcome the difficulties and differences between them. Emma and Herbert John Timmons of Dudley were married in September 1915 whilst he was in the army. They spent little time together but did have eight days leave in Blackpool where they conceived a child. Herbert returned to the front but suffered an injury to his hand. Upon being discharged, Herbert came back to Britain but not to his wife. In 1917, a letter he had written after one spell of leave was read out in court when Emma applied for a separation order against him.
0: When I came away, I never intended seeing you again. I wished to God I'd been another half hour later at the registry office and I found you gone so that I should still have been single. I thought we could have been happy, but I found out my mistake when I came on leave the second time. And if you had only the sense to come and live at my home for a time... You would have soon understood me. But you drifted miles away and the only consolation I have is to get my hand right and go out to the front again and get killed out of it. I might have known there was no happiness in this world for me. You are entitled to the separation allowance so have a good time with it and I hope you will pick up with a good man and spend the rest of your life in happiness and good health. The next time I write I hope you will have found someone who understands you. Good boy. And if you do not write, I will think all the better of you. You're very much mistaken, Bert.
2: Many other couples who had begun relationships had not married before the man either volunteered or was conscripted into the forces. They faced additional pressures. Unsurprisingly, the authorities were unsympathetic when 21-year-old James Knight absconded from his training camp to get married in November 1914. Although Knight intended to return, his captain in the Worcestershire Regiment wrote,
4: You are a deserter, and the longer you are away, the greater your punishment will be. I will arrange for you to go home to be married when the time comes.
2: James Knight remained in custody, awaiting military escort back to his barracks. Couples in the early 20th century frequently married only when the woman became pregnant. When soldiers like James Knight were unable to get leave to marry, women were often left holding the baby. By spring 1915, the number of illegitimate births had risen to 36,000 a year and was causing panic. But as Dr Tchaikovsky explained...
3: A very large proportion of the 36,000 fathers who were civilians at the beginning of 1914 are now soldiers, and that consequently, even if there were not the great increase in illegitimacy which is talked of, A very large proportion of the illegitimate children must be the children of soldiers.
2: Leave, for those serving on the Western Front, was rare. Men in the ranks were entitled to return home for a few days every 15 months, and officers every three months. However, in practice this was irregular and often postponed. For those stationed in Britain, leave was more easily obtained, but those posted further afield had little hope of returning home unless injured before the end of the war. There were therefore limited opportunities for recently married couples to start a family. John and Bessie, however, were expecting their second child when John enlisted in 1915. He writes on June the 1st.
5: Have you written to the nurse and got everything ready? Don't leave it all till the last. But of course there is plenty of time till July. I shall put him for leave about a fortnight before and get it all right.
2: As a result of John's separation from the family, Many of the decisions he and his wife would have chatted about together at home had to be discussed via letter.
5: I think it would be nice of a baby if he did not have the same name as me.
2: I wonder what Uncle Kane's
5: second name is. I don't know what to suggest.
2: Those lucky enough to return to both home and family often found readjusting back into civilian life a challenge. The oral testimony of George Hewins from Stratford-upon-Avon describes the difficulties he encountered after he was wounded and invalided out of the army. He found he had no place within the family anymore. His role was uncertain. His family had adapted to the wartime circumstances and managed without him.
6: It didn't matter to me that the war was over. I'm much celebrating, I said. I will not handy no more. I got onto the missus' feet. The older kiddies was at work. Our Reed had started at Asquist of Old Town, Skivian. She stopped one week and walked out. The missus said, You're supposed to be at work. I'm taking you back. They always reckoned to go to the missus if they wanted to ask about a job or anything. The last words were hers.
2: Not only had he lost his position within the family, his absence whilst at the front meant that his youngest child did not know him.
6: Mornings were the worst time. The pubs didn't open till dinner time now. The younger kiddies had gone to school, all but our Mary. She kept shrinking from me. She didn't know me. She howled for a man.
2: Unknowing of the difficulties they would face when returning to family life, it is unsurprising that the main concern for absent husbands and lovers was the fear of being replaced by another man. Private Thomas Vaughan of the 3rd Worcestershire Regiment wrote to his wife in early August 1918 before re-entering the trenches.
0: There is no need for you to worry. I stand the same chance as anyone else. If I should get it, one thing I can say, I have not disgraced you. The only thing that worries me is someone else in my place. But I ought not to, as one can never tell what circumstances you may be in.
2: While every man at the front must have known the risk of death, There was very little mention of mortality in their letters home. However, they did express concerns for their loved ones' welfare should their luck run out. With the low military wages, John explained just how difficult saving for the future could be.
5: Don't worry yourself too much about saving. I'm quite sure you're not the least bit extravagant. There are a great many people not saving at all, judging by the parcels some fellows receive. I've given up trying to save on five shillings a week. There's sixpence a week for washing and if I come back here and have two teas at one shilling each, that's half the week's money gone in two days. At the end of the week, the washing money is refunded. There is fourpence or sixpence for a concert, and if we have a bad breakfast, I run and get a cup of tea and a slice of cake, two and a half shillings. There's not much left.
2: Even under the most extreme circumstances, men's concerns were still focused on their family's future. Albert Smith was the father of three young children from Benjworth, who had served in the army for twelve years before enlisting for a further four years at the beginning of the conflict. In 1915, he became detached from his regiment during the fighting, but was sentenced to death for desertion. In a final letter, he wrote,
3: My dearest wife and kiddies, just a few lines in answer to your loving letter I received quite safe. Well, I expect this will be the last letter from me, my dear, as I have got to be shot for being absent, but I could not help it. I tried to find my regiment. I did my very best. But it can't be helped. My dear, I wish I could have seen you all. You must try to do your best for the kiddies. I should not upset myself, my dear. I did my duty before I was absent. It has all been trouble with us. I was very unlucky. I am so sorry to have to write a letter like this, my dear. I am quite done up. I did not think I should have come to an end like this, dear. I would rather be shot by a German. Well, I must close now, darling, for the last time. Try to forget me for your broken-hearted husband, Bert. Do your best for my dear kiddies. God bless them. May he be always with you and them.
2: Many correspondents of the First World War, like Albert, expressed concern for the future of loved ones and were sustained by thoughts of a better and more stable existence for themselves and their families in the future. Letters were vital to the survival of the bond between couples throughout more than four years of war. They were the foundations for a relationship just beginning, the platform for enduring separation and the only available lifeline to maintaining marriages. The cost of war in personal terms is very much a part of these letters as couples' lives were entwined with one another via the post. However, these are not love letters in a traditional sense. They are not filled with extravagant romance or endless passionate gestures. They are the realities of love, a caring love based upon mutual affection with a desire to reassure and dream of a happy ever after at their heart. Love during war took on many forms. It was complex varied and enormously significant, both to those fighting at the front and those left behind. Let us reveal the attitudes, opinions, thoughts and feelings of those enduring life at war. In many ways, they give a voice to the stories that have remained unspoken, untold.
1: You can sign up for our newsletter... And listen to more programmes by Hayley Carter at our website, www.historywm.com, where there is also a series of films on the hidden home front of Worcestershire.